Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. Welcome to Story Paths, a podcast about the stories we tell and the stories we live, which are often one and the same. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. This episode marks the grand opening of Season 2. In this cycle, we'll have fewer episodes, but each one will be more in-depth. An exploration through sound of particular themes, bringing in different speakers, quotes, thoughts, music, a whole experience for your ears and mind and heart and body. And along with each episode, I'll craft one or more short stories, which I'll tell in video form, and also make some original artwork so as to make a little solar system with a podcast in the center each month. But more on this at the end. Near the beginning of this episode, there will be some short guided meditations which, if it feels right, you can enter into. You may want to be sitting somewhere peaceful for this. For now, take a deep breath. And we'll begin. Sometimes I look out at everything growing so wild and faithfully beneath the sky and wonder why we are the one terrible part of creation privileged to refuse our flowering by David White from The Sun. These are ancient paths of dreaming, etched into the landscape in song and story, and mapped into our minds and bodies and relationships with everything around us. Knowledge stored in every waterway and every rock. Tyson Yunkaporta really acknowledge and pay respects, you know, to all the elders and knowledge keepers and the, the custodians, the people who are caring for, caring for place, the people who carry the languages of the land that are embedded in the landscape and come from that landscape. And I mean, every bioregion is just, is the perfect expression. Um, 
everything in that place and how it grows. That language carries the pattern of the land and uh, also shows you how to be and live upon it. So for the people who are keeping that for us now, even though it's not something that's that's being used or understood by you know most people in the world, these are the tools and the patternings and the ways of being that all humans are going to need going forward. You know, during the thousand-year cleanup, we're all going to need to recover and reconnect with those patternings of the land. A big thank you to all those people who are still holding and keeping those things for us uh, so we can find our way back you know, to being human again. That was the voice of Tyson Junkaporta, a member of the Appalachian clan in far north Queensland, Australia. He's a systems thinker, a traditional carver, an arts critic, and a senior lecturer in Indigenous knowledge at Deakin University in Melbourne. He's also the author, along with his land and community, of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And today, he's going to bring us into this question. What are people for? This is also the title of an essay by a rare elder, Wendell Berry and we'll be hearing some of his thoughts on this as well. What are humans for? I've heard a lot of talk about how unique we are with our opposable thumbs and our big brains, our tendency to make religions and go to the moon, our genius with domesticating plants and animals, our wildly imaginative arts and culture, our cracking nature's codes to gain technological superpowers and advanced civilization, and our unfortunate tendency to destroy ecosystems that all life here depends on. And yeah, sometimes I look around at paved roads and the dull tips of gargantuan supply chains, at the colossal machines chewing soil from seabeds and blowing off mountaintops, and I feel like I'm part of a species that came from another planet. That we recently colonized Earth and because as outsiders we have no idea how to live within our systems, we'll be forced to move on once we've used everything up. Start mining asteroids and things. I have to remind myself that I'm living in a tiny slice of our entire time that we've been here that the dominant culture now is a pathological adolescent one, a colonizer who was colonized himself so long ago as to have nearly, nearly forgotten the old ways. The old ways, weaving human with land, the knowledge that human is land, the old ways in which we are included not as cancer, but caregiver. Those old ways, nearly forgotten. Nearly. Buried underground. A forced life is mainly below ground. Brainwashed out of us. The old ways aren't just in our brains. 
They're in our blood, our gut, our bones, and the land. Our bones. I do love the land. But do you know the land loves you? I know that she'd be better off without us. Then why did she dream us? Then why did she? What are humans for? Why, from an ecological point of view, do we have the capacities that we do? Here's a small meditation for you. If you're comfortable to do so, place your feet flat on the ground and take a few deep breaths. You can close your eyes or keep them open. Consider this place, here, wherever that may be, this place where you're sitting. Become aware of beings and objects nearby, then allow your awareness to expand outward to what you know of the surroundings, beyond buildings, out into the environment around. Feel the movement of people, Machines, growth, trees, crawling, flying creatures. Let your sense of time loosen and imagine this place ten years ago. Going back, what's changed? Are there different people here? Some you don't know? or the same ones in earlier parts of their lives? If there are buildings, how are those buildings different? The trees, gardens, animals, machines, what are they all up to? Now drift back further in time, imagining this place 20 years ago. Drifting further back to 50 years ago, Imagining it, the changes a hundred years ago. Who's here now? How are they living? What's the land like? Which animals are here now? Further back, two hundred years. What does the place look like now? Sound like, smell, touch, bird call, rain, leaves. Now let yourself relax, strolling back forward in time, loosening your imagination, reining it in, gradually returning to the present. Take a few deep breaths. Feet on the ground. <sighs> Have a look around. Having gone on this small journey, 
Has your sense of place changed? Once again, relax your sense of time. Only this time, let yourself drift forward. Imagining this place five years ahead. Has much changed? How are people living, drinking, moving around? How about the trees, plants, and animals? Are they healthy, in good relations, giving birth, producing new trunks, seeds? Go further, ten, twenty years ahead. Look around, feel, hear, smell. Widen your mind to encompass the whole ecosystem that you're in, the whole watershed, with trickles raining down, forming into rivulets, streams, creeks, rivers. Consider this place's connection with the ocean. And if you don't like this, what you're experiencing in this future time, you might invite in more health into the land, flowing air, sunshine, animal life, nourishing streams. You might ask for their help in making this time life-affirming and abundant. Open yourself to their help. When you're ready, let yourself drift back to the present. <sighs> Have a few deep breaths, and consider: Isn't it amazing what you've just done? Imagining yourself into the past, spreading your mind out, and then moving into the future, considering. This whole ecological context, beyond what your senses are telling you this moment, if you think about it, it's such an incredible capacity for a species, for us, to have. Biologically speaking, in the context of the entire Earth community, you might ask yourself, why can we humans change our awareness like this? And there's more. Consider the people in your life, the constellation of relations in person or online. Is there someone that, among all those, you've recently had a disagreement with? Probably, they may have done or said something to anger you, and perhaps you feel right in this anger, or wronged, or mixed. Whatever it is, that's all right. Consider that person. That's bugging you. That they consider their appearance and their actions, and also whatever else you may know about them, the life that they live in, their relations, tracing their life back as far as you know it or can guess, thinking about what their whole day might be like, what thoughts may be going through their mind, from whom might they have learned what it means to be a good person, what success is, how are they formed? That they eventually became troublesome to you. 
You need not accept their views or behavior, need not set down your anger, but I do invite you to take a moment to consider this person more deeply than you have thus far. How did they come to be as they are? So come on back to your feet on the ground, your breath, your solidity. Now, here. Why do we have these capacities of imagination and empathy? They allow us to enter characters in novels, plays, and films, to grieve and celebrate with people on the news, although they're thousands of miles away and we may never meet them face to face, to open up to different people with different worldviews, different cultures, to feel what our loved ones feel, at least a little, to imagine empathically possible futures and reimagine the great treasure trove of the past. To invest meaning into objects like flags, badges, uniforms, complexions, smells, music, so that they stand symbolically for entire collections of conceptions. Empathy, imagination, symbol, metaphor. But so much of that is in relation with other humans. And modern culture is oh-so-human-centric, isn't it? What of the wider Earth community? What happens when we turn that empathy and imagination, symbol-forming, metaphor-forming, story-forming capacity toward those who surround us and infuse our little human experience with life? Myths are sung from the landscape's point of view. Sean King Why, ecologically speaking, do we have this capacity for imagination and empathy? Ecological. Eco means home and logic to study. The study of our home which turns out to be composed of living beings in dynamic webs of interrelationship. Our home is their home, their home is ours. The pattern webs that they move in, well, we also dwell within those same webs. Their points within a pattern, as are we. What's our place in all this, how might our metaphorical, symbolic thinking, our empathy and our imagination connect us with these other inhabitants of the earth who often seem so very different from ourselves? What are humans for? Why are we in this ecological web in the first place? Here's a different kind of meditation. Have a few deep breaths, feet on the ground, Sitting or standing, 
Imagine that you have a taproot that grows down from your core, down through your legs, knees, past your feet, into the solid, nourishing soil. Let your roots seek ever downward through soil and stone, down, down, down to the core of the earth. And keeping that there, reach up as well, stretching hands in the air, hands spread with leaves sprouting from your fingernails, branching out and catching delicious rays of sunlight, sipping sweet sunlight, while below you're still tasting rich granules of moist soil and the warm heart of the planet. What kind of tree might you be? Are you an alder, fast-growing from common roots? A fiery eucalyptus, an oak, slower to grow, more solitary? Or are you of another kind? Or are you a swimmer? A flyer? A burrower? Are you running with your pack? It's part of our unique makeup. is the capacity to do abstract thinking that isn't brain-bound, but is, has neurological processes that occur you know, outside of our body in that kind of haptic relation with everything that we're connected to in the environment around us. So our relationships you know, with humans and non-humans, you know, we have that unique capacity to be able to have that cognition going on, but then be able to express it in different ways and collectively come together um, and communicate that in groups where all the different points of view, you know, everybody brings data, you know, and information coming from different points of view through narrative and metaphor, symbol, image, all these different things. You can bring all these things together and you, you're kind of working with one belly, you know, because your cognition is not just your brain either. A lot of it's in the belly, our power there. And you sort of come together and create like a larger mind that has the computational processing power to be able to understand entire systems and to find the patterns of those systems and see where the leverage points are of, you know, what you need to do with minimal intervention that still lets nature do all the heavy lifting, but you're able to have that light hand in your custodial role in the relationship with the land. We're quite unique in that. Some say that the earth would be better off without us that we're a cancer, and good gosh, these days it's not hard to find evidence for that case. 
I've also heard a lot about how great humans are, the pinnacle of evolution, the only truly sentient species, and all that. Even got opposable thumbs. We have potent and unique capacities that do distinguish us from all the other species. And this, perhaps, is why some scriptures and teachers say that we were put here to have dominion over the earth. In today's industrialized societies, though usually secular, this ethos of domination is alive and well. That the world exists for us. For me. The thing is that we come from the earth. You may say that part of us is spirit, but surely at least part of us is earth. And if we ascribe any intelligence or wisdom to this planet at all, we must see that we've grown here for a reason, and that that reason may not just be for ourselves. Spiritually speaking, we might think we came here to learn how to transcend, but it seems a bit odd that our purpose in being here would be just to leave. So why are we here? What's our work here, here on this planet, in this vast interwoven ecosystem with all its subsystems and sub-subsystems and sub-sub-sub-subsystems all woven with each other, fractally, expanding, contracting, breathing? Why can we even consider these things? and ask these questions. Why do we see stories within stories within stories within stories within stories? Story is an extended metaphor, but a metaphor is like the language of spirit. You know, so we're also at that nexus between two worlds. Yeah, that unique role between that world of spirit and the tangible world. We were able to do that translation work that affects change. You know, it's like this turnaround that happens. And you translate things from this side, you know, tangible side reality, and you translate that into abstract. Metaphors connect known to unknown, physical to abstract, earth to sky, Spirit is like wind. Spirit is like water. We feel what is beyond touch, envision the invisible through metaphor. The creator is she who holds all the eggs. First woman was in the sky, holding the tree of life and peering down into this world. Metaphors make intangible tangible and then bring us back to intangible again. And yeah, what is a story but a pattern of metaphors? Those metaphors may be plain as in a morality tale, and these days those kinds of stories feel too on the nose, too obvious. But complex stories are metaphors too, links from the physical to the abstract, 
the heart of industrialized war became Sauron ordering his orcs to destroy the Shire. Earth's governments and militaries are unpacked as planets within a spacefaring federation. Untamable nature became massive, sand-devouring worms. Science fiction is usually set in the future, but it's always really about the present time. And these pop culture examples show that even when we're not within an intact culture, we still do this. We still link physical with subtle and back again. It's in our makeup. But in elder cultures, that's not used primarily for entertainment or intellectual exploration. This capacity for metaphor and story is employed in a custodial relationship with spirit and with our home, our eco. Images, metaphor, dance, ceremony, story, these things. And so it's in that uh, imaginal space, that place of spirit, the non-tangible space. All those different representations, I guess, uh, it's like a code. Yeah, that, that kind of coding of reality that's there. And then you're able to sort of subtly change lines of code in that. So when you're dancing, that ceremony, singing, storying, painting, drawing, etc., you know, that reality over there, you can sort of change things and you, you just slightly, and then you, you close that loop then by bringing those, translating those things back into the reality. Our role in there is not to grow the size of the ecosystem, but it's to increase the amount and quality of connections, relationships, you know, and information flows within that ecosystem. Uh, that's what we do. You can uh, increase infinitely into the micro in that way. So we have what uh, anthropologists call increased ceremonies, and we do these annually. Now, your increased ceremonies are, you know, for each of those totemic groups, um, you have ceremonies that you do to, you know, increase the connectedness and relatedness in the system for those entities. And it's the ceremony itself that allows you to access, like, um, very higher states of consciousness that allow you to do the computing power collectively, uh, to have that one mind. It's not just unifying your thinking as a group of people, you know, who are clapping together, stomping together, singing together. Although, you know, that, that, that has a measurable psychological effect, uh, of bringing people into sync. And there are chemical things that happen in the brain when, when people are mirroring each other like that, that there's a multiplier effect. The bigger the group of people is that's all doing the same thing at the same time. But it's not just the people there. It's that connection then that happens with the uh, non-human entities that the people are referencing through metaphor of dance and story and song and all kinds of things, rhythms. There are a thousand metaphors used there. It's that connection with those species and actually blurring that self-other boundary, not just between yourself and the other humans you're in relation with there, but also with those non-human entities. And then, of course, with that larger entity of place, you know, the land that you're standing on, you become so deeply embedded in that. But then what ceremony really does is that everything on the earth is mirrored in Sky Camp, you know, in that world of spirit. 
So it actually brings down and creates an overlap. Yeah, it creates a, a connection and overlap between that mirror world of spirit and the world of the land. And you're completely, for the duration of that ceremony, embodied within those relations, mm. human relations together and and the non-human and the place and the spirit and that spirit world, all, all is one thing. And that that's where you can glimpse the pattern process. You can't replicate that pattern in any meaningful way except at very high levels of initiation in very senior elders, like 120 years old kind of thing. <laughs> they, they can do all that celestial side stuff, but uh, us mere mortals can't. Um, yeah, and that's, that's how all that works, I guess. It's quite a vision, isn't it, of the role of a custodial species? To be intertwined with other humans, with creatures and plants, the land, with spirit, all so as to learn what must be done and to make those changes. To keep the pattern healthy, carefully, no more than healthy, to increase thriving interconnections. And could we ever really feel content with anything less, with any lesser role, might this insatiable hunger our species seems to have now come from losing this vital role in the world? Welcome to Coast Salish Territory. We are going to share a song to welcome you to the shared territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh. Welcome. I'd like to add here that I've been attending a webinar series on the Salish Sea ecosystem, in which I'm now located, which stretches up and down the west coast of what we now call Canada and the U.S. These presentations are mostly scientific, data about whale migrations and populations, invasive species, oceanic currents, food supplies for phytoplankton, zooplankton, and so on. I don't see a lot of ceremony in these webinars, true, not full-fledged culture, but I do see people coming together to share this knowledge of our eco, our home. They're pooling this collected data together to better know our world, so as to know which changes we might make to bring her back to health. Beneath all the data and scientific protocols, I do see people in deep love with the earth and connected with each other to help heal her. Of course, our correcting might well begin with human culture, and I see great efforts being made for this as well. The point I'm making is that to act in a custodial way, one need not be born into a particular culture like an ancient tribe within the outback of Australia. This isn't a stereotype thing. Wherever you're born, 
you're human. And so you have these capacities and you have an embedded inclination to care for land and be in deep relation with land. Where we now see civilizations tearing up the earth, in all those places, once there were people living close to soil and creature and story. Most of what we call wild has been tended at some point by humans, but with light hands. Your ancestors, my ancestors, regardless of the relationship between nations now, colonized and colonizer who was previously colonized, all of us, all of us come from earth-based cultures. People within villages that are within forests full of trees and creatures, grasslands, savannas, lakes, deserts. Humans as points in a wider web, important in relation with all the others, and also dependent on all the others. Juniors among elders. The myth of Sky Woman widespread across the east coast of Turtle Island, describes the first human as a vulnerable newcomer to Earth. To survive, she needed the grace of the other creatures, her elder brothers and sisters. Dependent, one among many, and yet unique, we are skilled caretakers capable of exponentially increasing biodiversity, a keystone species yet blessed and cursed with the choice to neglect this role or even go against it. Why we are the one, terrible, part of creation, privileged to refuse our flowering. Rightly situated, we don't destroy biodiversity, we increase it. A proper farm hosts more biodiversity than the surrounding wildland. As Robin Wall Kimmerer says, sweetgrass, harvested responsibly, thrives more than if key was not harvested at all. For countless generations, native people throughout the world have used controlled burns to open up forest understory to new life, while creating fertile edge zones between forest and grasslands, where grazers and others proliferate. Small handmade dams sink water into the ground, creating lively ponds, much as beaver lodges do. Tree planting, in tune with the local land, often causes springs to reemerge from the soil, as Wangari Matai showed by planting a green belt of millions of trees across Africa and bringing so much groundwater up to the surface again. Thoughtful acts by human hands found throughout time and across the planet, found in all our ancestry and in ourselves. This too is who we are. Tenders, caretakers. Even while meeting our needs, we increase biodiversity. Especially while meeting our needs, like the wolf pack who call the weak ones from deer populations, like the dandelions who grow old and die, leaving the soil more aerated and richer than before. Like the native people of eastern Turtle Island who filled their forests with nut trees, 
like pruning crowded trees so that others have space to grow, tending nature. Ah, there's that word again, that name for everything in the world that is not we humans or something we created, nature. But see, that's the thing. We, we have these uh, metaphors, you know, these tangible metaphors that we use in that communication with spirit, but we don't do many abstract nouns in uh, Aboriginal languages. You know, the abstract nouns are not, not relied on, so we don't have words for things like nature, music, environment, sustainability, things like this. Art, we don't have a word for art or arts because this is not a discipline uh, that is separated in the economy or in your life, you know, from your daily practice. You are art. That's part of, you know, that working with metaphors each day to make collective sense-making, collective meaning in the world as a species that's quite unique to us. I mean, a lot of animals have their own ceremony as well. And they enact these things collectively, but it's always within our wholeness with their living spirit and tangible reality simultaneously. But we're able to separate these things and move between them, but also exist in a liminal space in between and kind of move around in the worlds in that way. Um, yeah, so this is what makes us the custodial species, the carers, the ones who care for all of creation. In that way, yeah, we've sort of been given this unique role and the skills and affordances that are needed to be able to do that. What are humans for? Why are we even here from an earthly point of view? It's simple and also wonderful. We're a custodial species equipped to connect with the web of the world and make minimal interventions to expand biodiversity. There's sure a need for that now. That temperature rise will breach the ambition of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement and bring widespread devastation and unprecedented extreme weather. Wildfires blazing through Greece and Turkey have horrified people in the region. The panel concludes we'll see a lot more fires as temperatures continue to rise. A team of 38 leading scientists has issued a stark finding. Australia's ecosystems are facing collapse. Six months of record-breaking temperatures have fuelled massive forest fires in the Siberian Arctic this year. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by all the bad news? A drip feed of terrible events, nearly all beyond your power to affect. You're overwhelmed by all that needs to change. We're not talking about small changes here. Ecosystems are way out of balance. And they might start to recover, but they're hammered relentlessly. They need our help, but the real change has to happen within human culture first, 
to move our economy and lifestyles and mentalities from extraction to regeneration. Ecosystems may not actually recover without our intervention, but we keep hitting them harder and harder. You're so small, and the ailing planet is so huge. What can you do? What can I do? You find your head and heart churning with all that urgently, urgently needs to change. The times are urgent. Slow down. Bioakamalafe. What can these little hands do? Around 30 years ago, Wendell Berry wrote, How can anybody, any particular body, heal a planet? The suggestion that anybody could do so is preposterous. The heroes of abstraction keep galloping in on their white horses to save the planet, and they keep falling off in front of the grandstand. It's an abstract idea to heal the planet, bigger than the scale of our actual lives. So for those of you who feel overwhelmed by the enormity of all that needs changing on the planet, here's something hard but true. You can't change it. Not all of it. It's not that you don't love the earth enough, that you're too materialistic, or not dedicated enough to your soul mission. Those may be good things to gently reflect on, but they're not why you can't heal the world. The reason is that you're just one person, and one person can't do it, no matter how heroic they may be. We're not superheroes. Saving the world is simply beyond an individual's capacity, yours or mine. It's a big, abstract idea that may be sucking up your energy by keeping you feeling guilty and helpless, all the while holding you back from doing what you can do. Again, Wendell Berry. The large-scale solution to the large-scale problem serves mostly to distract people from the small private problems that they may, in fact, have the power to solve. Why do we create collectively a world that none of us want individually? Why do we try to solve individually what can only be addressed collectively? What if... Instead of believing the worst of our enemies, of corporations, governments, ecosystem destroyers, etc., instead of holding them in such poor regard, we instead hold their highest potential in mind, their deepest potential. Instead of being eager to punish them, what if we gave them an off-ramp from that life into life-affirming culture? With boundaries, of course. But hey, I've got blood on my hands. I could use an off-ramp. I can give myself to the work given to me. What is mine to do? Deepening into my lookout while connected with others. 
and this dynamic of individuals responsible for their own roles, linked with others working in their roles, all interfacing deeply with the wider world, well, this can lead to extraordinary patterns. It's true interspecies communication that's going on there. And if everybody in your community is totemically in relation, so everybody is a, a generalist, but everyone's a specialist at the same time. So you do have your eye on the entire system. But, you know, each person has that totem or a set of totems, which are plants, animal substances, everything in, in that ecosystem. So that ends up getting covered right across the entire clan. Everybody's responsible for different parts of it. Yeah, that's your lookout. You have that real connection and you're covering every part of the system. And that means that your kinship system is a mirror of the patterns, the patternings that are happening in that ecosystem, which is seldom a food chain or a, uh, <laughs> a food cycle. It's not the circle of life, life either. It's usually a really complex pattern that goes beyond even network uh, theory and network mathematics as well. So everybody's you know connected to these totemic entities in the landscape. And they're receiving that information constantly. And so if a certain animal or tree is your totem, then that's in your filters and your story to the point that you're the one who observes second, third, fourth order effects that are going on with that species in relation to other things that other people might not pick up on. So when everyone comes together, there's all that data. It's kind of like the first Internet of Things. <laughs> It's you and your totemic relation. That's where the sensors are, sensors. And, yeah, and you're sort of feeding that back constantly into the group. And you have elders um, and knowledge keepers. They have the authority. They carry the authority of that knowledge because they understand more deep time perspectives on how the aggregate of all those stories, you know, work in time over, over deeper cycles of time. Tyson mentioned the Internet of Things, and here's a brief segue about technology, something I'm actually planning on doing a whole episode on. I usually think of technology as smartphones, computers, cars, especially new electric cars, satellites, and so on. I don't tend to think of paper as technology, or hammers, or eating bowls. There's a saying that technology is anything that was invented after you were born. So for me, rotary phones wouldn't be technology, but smartphones would. But really, anything we've crafted is technology, including stone tools, bows and arrows, digging sticks. Any physical tool is technology. What else might be? Let's look at the roots of the word. Logi is a knowledge of how something works, a treatise or science. And tech? This refers to an art, skill, or craft, a system or method of making or doing. So technology is a knowledge of method, a knowledge of system. So this could be physical, like a way of felling a huge cedar tree using only stone tools, shell tools, and fire, then crafting it into an enormous canoe using those tools as well as steam. 
like the First Nations people along the west coast of Turtle Island have done and do around where I'm living. That can be technology. Technology can also be social, including ways of communicating within groups, such as ways of giving different speakers a chance to share their thoughts, ways of interconnecting thoughts, shared songs, stories, and ceremonies. These can all be technologies. Tyson mentioned the Internet of Things. Like the ceremonies he described, the Internet of Things can connect us humans to a vast network of interconnected points. In both the ceremony and the Internet, humans have the agency to change the system, both individually and collectively. The thing is, these new technologies aren't necessarily better than what came before. Faster, smaller, sure, but if you think about it for a while, generally speaking, we're not so much advancing as trading pros for cons and cons for pros and one con for another con. We lose community in favor of telecommunication, for example, something the Amish were very aware of. They usually shun telecommunication. Or we create pit mines to make greener cars. Trade-offs mostly, not progress, and often the loss is greater than the gain. So here's what's coming to me. The Internet of Things is human-centric. It's all things we made, and it has our own limited thought forms built into it. The made order, not the given order. Extraction, distraction. Whereas in the ceremonies that Tyson is describing, humans look out beyond their borders to consider the entire Earth community, and not for the purpose of just extracting from it. They consider the entire Earth community for the purpose of helping of stabilizing and improving the patterns. The methods and protocols that enable people to do that, the songs and stories, I'd call that superior technology. So let's cultivate that to pass on to future generations. It's like, oh my goodness, everybody's running around. Everybody thinks that individually or their particular tribe or group is you know, has got to come up with the thing that's going to change everything. But that's not how it is. That's why I kind of like that frame of the thousand-year cleanup. It lets people off the hook a little bit in terms of the deadline. So instead of running around just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks <laughs> and hoping that you'll be the, get the next Facebook of sustainability, that you instead gradually build up your cultural authority and you know, oh, this is a thousand-year job, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not going to be around for most of it. So, you know, what do I really need to do? Well, I need to be creating and leaving the tools for the people who will follow for the next few centuries. It's like, well, what will last the test of time over those centuries? What are the tools that I can leave? And I think in the end you you figure out that the, that the only tools that stand the test of time, you know, they're not tech. It's a good story in the end, good practice, not even mindsets, but entire cultures and ways of being that are connective. 
Of course, we don't currently live in a society where everyone's taking care of their own lookouts, unfortunately. But perhaps the best we can do is act as though we were. To let ourselves be drawn to the human and non-human systems which call to us personally the most. To connect our inner call to serve in a particular way with the work that needs to be done. Who, human or other than, are you called to attend to? Who calls to you? And your deep listening, who calls to you? How is story linked with land? I remember walking barefoot across sand and stone, sitting with hundreds of others in temples, next to fields, rivers, and ponds, swimming in holy waters, hearing orations of events said to have taken place in just that spot that are still taking place just now for those with eyes to see into that reality and ears to hear. Bathing in waters where divine beings played, touching my forehead to sand still imprinted with their footprints. How are landscape and story related? Pilgrims know that sites become cloaked over time with history and myth, scented by saints and deities, blessed by otherworldly beings. There are pilgrimages everywhere in the world, although they're not always called that. My own experience with pilgrimage is mainly in India, in Vrindavan, Jagannath Puri and Navadweep, sites woven with the pastimes of Radha and Krishna and their various incarnations, along with their constellation of associates. Some sites I visited host entire stories, while others hold pieces of holes that are scattered across several sites all crossing in a story web spread throughout the multi-mile circumference of the Dham, a sacred region as a whole. Not all these stories have neat beginnings, middle and ends, climaxes. Some do, some don't. Some are fragments picked up in other places, continued or non-linear. 
Between these dams, these sacred regions woven with stories, pilgrims have long trodden threads into sand and soil, thus weaving the dams together. Throughout India, and also westward and eastward, northward into Nepal and southward into Sri Lanka, the activities of saints and deities have been rooted into place. Here is where the foot of Parvati fell when she was cut into pieces. A hundred miles north is where her hand came to the ground. Just as the sites within one dam weave together into a hole, the dams weave together into a still larger story. Epic sagas emerge from the parts. During their exile, the Pandavas entered the forest of Dandakaranya, roaming the same paths as Ram, Sita, and Lakshman had roamed during their exile many millennia before. And everywhere, caves and temples dot the land where great sages practiced and taught. It's an astonishing, intricate tapestry. It does get a bit blurry at the edges. One will sometimes hear the idea that beyond the influence of this great culture lie nether regions, where no deity or saint is known to have gone. There's the conception that some lands are holier than others, that some cultures are holier. Many groups say as much. Yet, pulling back, we see that humans as a whole have been storying the world since their inception, and that lo, even in these dire times, these stories are being woven together, especially in these dire times. I've been setting up for the last year this Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at Deakin University, and we run on the protocols of Bunya Mountains gathering that happens every three years, you know, for the last 100,000 years. That Bunya Mountain Festival, it's, it's, it's a gathering of tribes from you know, thousands of miles away people travel for it. Uh, and have done forever. They would just walk for months to get there. It's a big ritual gathering. And this is what we all do and have done forever. You know, it's why Stonehenge is where it is. You know, people travel for these events that happen in these cycles. And But there's this sort of coming together, uh, this trade, and there are protocols to follow there. And um, one of the things that happens there traditionally in healthy regions and societies and continents and cultures is that um, if the sacred law of one community will be entrusted to certain individuals from another community, it could be a thousand miles away. So they carry that. And this ensures sustainability because if you have an asteroid strike that wipes out all your people, then that law still exists and that law can go back to that place again and can be repopulated with the same culture and language and everything else and the same really sacred uh, ceremonies that are there to care for that place. But at the same time, you're entrusting your holiest of holies to a potential rival community. So this ensures that while you might have um, battles from time to time, you, you can't have wars. So how about writing? That's a good way to encode and preserve collective memories, isn't it? It can be sent long distances, encoded into paper, or put online. 
Someone can read it on the other side of the world, not like knowledge passed on orally or encoded in landscape. And hey, I'm not going to bash writing. I'm reading this right now. But like all technologies, textual literacy comes at a cost. Only as the written text began to speak would the voices of the forest and of the river begin to fade, and only then would language loosen its ancient association with the invisible breath, the spirit sever itself from the wind, the psyche disassociate itself from the environing air. David Abrams There are many books out there now describing how the internet changes our brains. But there's less talk about the cost of learning to read such books. Costs to our childhood brains and to shared culture, to our relationship with land, to our memories. The brain of someone who isn't textually literate has all the same functions. They're not dormant and waiting for writing to come before they can become activated. Their brains are active and engaged now. How so? Well, the story goes that Thoth, that Ibis uh, entity, uh, demonic <laughs> Ibis entity, uh, introduced the concept of writing, you know, and Pharaoh was um, horrified and just went, this will be the death of human memory. Thoth said, no, nah, do it. This is how you're doing it now. And so then those spatial relations, those, those monuments lost their meaning at the point of uh, when literacy happened. And then literacy radically rewires rewires the brain, it, it hardwires the brain. There's, there's a lot of uh, neuroscience research that shows uh, the, the ways this happened. So like for your facial recognition, where you do that naturally in your brain, uh, that has to migrate to the other side of your brain and sort of, you know, sleep on the couch in a part of the brain where it really doesn't belong and doesn't work properly. So, you know, as soon as you become literate, that's just one of the things that goes. It's a very clunky process. It's very inefficient. That's why people struggle to learn to read. And then um, it, it just hardwires your brain very differently. You know, the actual biology changes, that very thin connection between the left and right hemispheres, that actually grows in thickness quite significantly. So you imagine... You know, you've got writing that takes away that uh, spatial relation with, with monuments, you know, where memory is kept and law is kept from before when those sedentary population used to move around at a landscape in communion with a sentient landscape where these song lines, you know, these ley lines, these lines of power that are also lines of narrative, that are also trade routes, that are also storylines that are also cognitive maps in your inner landscape and outer landscape where every landform carries law carries story oceans of information and then those maps are mirrored also in the night sky in that world of spirit so you've got these two worlds turning and, and connecting like different fingers on different fingers making infinite combinatorials and there's so much going on there <laughs> so much to process but i do see this all around the world when i when i share story with people and people share story with me you find that still very alive in um, in uh, much of asia even in china still even after the cultural revolution and all the rest 
are still very much there. All that uh, feng shui and all that kind of thing. You see it in Europe in the ley lines. You see it in the Nordic countries. It's a bit dormant, although they're trying to re revive us, a lot of the Nordic animists. But it's still most alive in Iceland. The way they build and where they can put a road is really, you know, strongly dependent on where the fairies are, you know. <laughs> like, it's like, no, you can't build there. <laughs> we can't put a fence across there. That'll, that'll be really bad. Uh, that's breaking that line, you know, and you can't break that line. Because uh, once you break it, then everything goes wrong. The old ways seep through, even in modern times. Domesticated as I may be, I am still a human. What does it mean to live with land, within land? These ways aren't so rare as we might think, nor do they only exist in cultures whom we consider to be indigenous. You can go to Italy <laughs> and you'll see there is Italian language, right? And like everybody on that peninsula has to speak that. When you turn on the news, that's how people talk. But you go into most people's houses and that's not how they're talking. You know, they're still speaking their dialects because people are still very much in Italy. People are very much of their paese. And that's a very difficult concept to explain, but it's very understandable to an Aust Aboriginal Australian. <laughs> you know, you're like, ah, yeah, no, I know that. So paese, it's, so yes, it's your village, but it's also your country, your land. That's where you're from. And there's that same sort of fractal identity going on where, you know, you are you, but you're also really bound within your obligations to an extended family. And so that's like your clan, you know, and you are, so you're a sovereign being, but at the same time, you are, you're held in that relation with the extended family, you know, and that places obligations and limits upon you and balances that out. But then your family, I mean, it's, it's independent, your family, your extended family, and takes care of its own business. But then at the same time, it's, um, it's nested within this relation with the rest of the, the village, the paese, the town. And so many of these towns, like in the countryside, you see, and even the cities, you know, you find, if you find in that piazza there, that main central square of any city or village, there's usually a, a fountain. There's often a fountain, and often that fountain is fed from a spring because that place has been built around that spring, you know, in relation with an entity, uh, a spiritual entity in that place that lives in that spring, you know, and that's the animating force of that community, you know, so you still have this really strongly. And then that comes out fractally then to the rest of your region. If you're from Assisi, then that's, that's your little paese there, but you're also of Umbria. And it's like, oh, well, I'm from the green heart. I'm from the only place that has no coast, you know, and you're in that green heart and you're of those 
hills and ridges and a lot of your traditional food is like chingale, that wild boar, you know, it's um, your language. So the Umbrian dialect is unique and it sounds quite a bit like Italian and you can follow it, but it's very different as well, you know, because you're living a life that's so place-based and your identity is so place-based, you know, in these concentric circles of I am me, but I am me de something, you know, which is my surname, like of this place or of this, you know, <laughs> thing. I am that and I am, am of this little paese here and these are my paisanos here, but I'm also of this region and that's my true language. But then I'm also of this peninsula, uh, this collective of regions. So I am Italian. Okay, so there's still land-based culture in Italy, but what of, say, England? chief of the colonizing nations, at least in the last few centuries. They practiced on the Irish and Welsh, then dominated India, America, Canada, Australia. Well, governments and corporations from England did so. But surely the old land ways must be battered out of those poor old sods by now, right? You go down the high street in any town in England and, and they'll sell you a walking trails map, you know, and that's that's sacred business there. They, I mean, they don't refer to it as such, but they all do it. And, you know, God forbid a farmer who'd put a fence up but who would not provide a, a, a way of getting through that fence. I mean, they have to build little stair things around so that these walkers, and they're not hikers, they're not doing a hike. Like, I like hiking in the wilderness. It's like it's not like that because these are natives of that place. They don't go hiking in the wilderness. They're following ancient trails. You know, they're doing a process of walking the song lines of their landscape, and they do that over and over and over. Yeah, and it's not like something that gives them an ecstatic spiritual experience. It's just something that they must do because that's who they are. They're of that place, and they have to walk those trails. It's freaking amazing. They, you could be in London and, and, I mean, you have to be able to walk, you know, along the Thames because every river in the world is a song line, you know, as a song line alongside, like a, a route alongside it that you must follow. It's still a sacred waterway. You know, it's this is something that's still alive in people because it's our patterning. Our species does this. You know, we are embedded in a dynamic landscape that has these lines going through it, and you'll find it. I want to mention a group who lead pilgrimages throughout Britain, the British Pilgrimage Trust. They go to impressive cathedrals like the one in Canterbury, and by the way, Canterbury is said to have gotten its name because traditionally people from London would travel there riding or being pulled by horses, and the horses would go at an eager canter between a trot and a gallop. These people were eager to go on pilgrimage. 
along with their horses. So the guides at the British Pilgrimage Trust guide pilgrims to these famous holy sites like Canterbury, yes, but while there, they also reveal the older stories beneath the later Christian ones. They follow ancient trails to give respects to ancient wells and streams, some of which are now hidden in the courtyards and parks of modern cities. Beneath modern life, so secular and grey and homogenous, old mythologies burst from the bedrock. Amid grids of paved roads, footpaths emerge. Can you see them? If you can think about any campus, any campus you've ever been on, there's all the paths that get laid down by the people who design the campus, and then there's the paths that people take. And you can see those because they're worn, they're worn through the grass, these trails, straight past the sign that says keep off the grass. You know, the desire lines are the lines that everybody wants to follow when they walk, and nobody can help it. And everybody does it the same way to the point that even if it's not planned, even if the affordance isn't really there and even if it doesn't make sense to go that way, everybody walks that way and soon it wears a trail in, in the dirt. It's a collective unconscious conscious that's going on there. And you don't find this very much anymore. But when you were a kid, if you ever had to go to a new town, like even if it was just for a week, you would know where to go to find the other kids. Like the kids who were doing the real play, you know. So there's you, and you're spotting them. It's stuff your parents are driving right past, but you're looking out the window and you go, "Oh, there's the hole in the fence." Yep, got it. <laughs> you know, so there's a hole in the fence and there's a track. There's like game trails for kids, and you follow them and you find the kids who are like, you know, burning frogs with magnifying glasses and you know having slingshot fights and <laughs> you know um, building cubbies out of out of out of wrecked building materials and uh, all kinds of things you know you find them you find them there because you follow those desire lines but me i mean i always i never lost that as an adult and i'd be driving into a town and i'd be clocking the desire lines where the kids go <laughs> especially as a parent i want to know where they're going to run off to where i can find them after here's a question that often comes up in discussions about reconnecting with the earth Given that most of us don't live in our ancestral homes anymore, what can we do to connect to the earth? How can settlers in North America, Australia, and other places ever become real locals? For that matter, a lot of indigenous people are now living in places that they are not born to. Are we now forever doomed to remain cultureless, uprooted? Well, there are people we call indigenous and people we don't. It's an important distinction because indigenous people are often being oppressed and dominated in their own land, pulled from traditional lifeways, and that has to be recognized. Myself, coming from a culture engaged in ongoing colonization of other people here in Canada, I can't just roll out of bed one day and start calling myself indigenous. And yet, and yet, we do all come from the earth. If modern people like me, uprooted in extractive culture, forgetful of deep time, of earth time, if we can't reconnect with the earth, well, it's game over. And we all come from the earth. 
Well, it turns out we're not the first ones to have this problem. When Viking communities in Scandinavia became sedentary, no longer moving across the land in annual cycles, no longer returning regularly to places embedded with memories, they recognized their loss and approached the Same people. The Same were still nomadic, still living their old ways, and they gave the Vikings some pointers. The Vikings were not engaged in that dreaded intercultural thing. They were not doing cultural appropriation. This was one culture, the Vikings, respectfully learning from another. Not copying, but learning. And done right, that is one of the great things that we humans do. The finfaring from the Nordic countries, you know, that traditionally that was just the embassy between your Viking communities, you know, your Angles and Jutes and Danes and Norsemen, all the rest, that they would sit down with the Same indigenous and even Koryaks in, in Russia and all this kind of thing, you sit down and, and have embassy and exchange. And your, your deepest wisdom and story from your culture would be exchanged with that one. But the Nords in becoming sedentary, like uh, settling in permanent communities in one place rather than following the herds as the Same do on, on migration routes through their territories. Um, they had lost something, you know. They lost a lot of the processes of understanding place and, and working knowledge and story and spirit and ceremony. And so those were the things that the Same were helping them out with. There's this mutual aid going on in terms of governance structures and, and things like this, but particularly spiritual and ceremonial things. So they weren't taking the Same stories or taking the Same rituals. You know, it wasn't the content of these things that was important, but it was relearning the processes, you know, so that their wise people and their law speakers would have the tools and the processes that they needed to maintain the law and the um, story and the, the ceremony, you know, as needed. Rekindling one fire from from yeah exactly exactly and it's the same as what I was saying in those big processes of uh, embassy and gathering that we've had here for thousands of years. You know your sacred law is held by and kept by another tribe, maybe several tribes elsewhere, and there are people in your community who hold law from north and east and south for other communities as well. Yeah, these are the things that enable us to be able to maintain and retain a Sunline's map of the entire continent so that as needed, we'd be able to sing our way and walk to almost anywhere uh, that we needed to go. That's what makes for the fractal governance that is regenerative and sustainable over deep time and that ensures that there is an extractive relation with the environment that would lead to expansion and necessarily imperialism. You know, because you can't do imperialism, you can't annex, you can't expand, you can only increase. And what you increase is relations. And so that gives you your economic system too, because those gatherings were time for trade. And so your economic system runs an increased model too of making good relations. So, you know, the Vikings were basically making good relations with the with the, what they call the Finns. And I know quite a, I know a Nordic animist that um, is continuing that tradition 
and he goes all around the world. He'll go and sit down with uh, with people in Brazil and do fin firing with them, you know, from his Nordic analyst perspective, and and grow embassy. And there's a kind of a cultural hybridity that happens there, but not between the content. So he's not taking back, you know, a tribal mask or a rattle <laughs> and then introducing that to his culture. But he might be incorporating parts of the process of understanding what masks are for and how to work those masks for when he puts on his raven mask at the next um, equinox you know, a uh, festival that they have there. And then he passes that process on to the rest of his community. So it works like that. I think most human beings still at least carry the patterning of be able, being able to return to what it is to be human, just the way a lot of animals in captivity, you know. I mean, some birds won't fly when you open the cage, but others, they might be multi-generational born in captivity and, and they'll just, boom, out they go and they know the migration routes. You know, you let that baby whale go, you know, out of Sea World and put him in the ocean, he knows where to go. You got you got those migration routes. Those are hardwired into them, you know. For us we have we have hardwired into us its relatedness. You know, so A with the landscape, but then B with them with governance and economies. These are systems that are patterned on the landscape and that are patterned within us because we are part of the landscape. As we near the end of this presentation, I want to say that cultivating regenerative culture can start small, wherever you are, whoever you are. There's no need to imitate other cultures, but we can surely learn from them. These are strange times, with cancel culture, broken culture, lots of shallow, argumentative debates, few rites of passage or true elders. Yet, fragments are there, without and within. The possibility for true communication is there. We're all native to Earth. I've felt goofy sometimes, learning to sing in circles, to make altars on the land, to speak with trees and listen to what birds are telling me. I feel like I'm in kindergarten, asking adults how things are done and trying to do them in a way that's true for me. But I'm learning. I'd like to end with a quote. In his book Wild Mind, Bill Plotkin, depth psychologist, wilderness guide, and agent of cultural evolution, writes... There are at least three ways in which someone can be indigenous, culturally of a particular people or tribe, ecologically of a particular ecosystem or geographical place, or terrestrially of earth, each kind having an essential relationship with the other two. Most contemporary humans worldwide have lost touch with the cultural traditions 
wisdom, and mode of consciousness of their ancestors, those who were psycho-spiritually rooted in the place they lived, their particular river valley, mountain range, desert canyon, sea coast, forest, island, or savanna, in this sense, most people today are neither culturally nor ecologically indigenous. Yet, what enabled our indigenous ancestors to truly and fully belong to their geographic place and to generate life-enhancing cultures was the fact that their physical and psychological capacities were shaped by the terrestrial world that we have in common with them. They emerged from this world in a specific place and lived accordingly. And by living accordingly, they engendered particular cultures, ways of living that were inherent elements of their more-than-human community. Their cultures were organic fruitions of their place, indigenous. Human culture and environment were interdependent, mutually shaping and mutually enhancing. We can once again become indigenous to the place we live, our valley, watershed, or bioregion, and collectively engender ways of life fully resonant with and integral to our local ecosystem, cultures that harmonize with the songline of our place. This will take a good deal of time, likely several generations all the more reason to celebrate the small but growing number of communities throughout the Western world that are now two or three generations into this process of relocalization, of returning home to place. Bill Plotkin So, I'm glad you joined me here. I have a bit of shop to talk now, and then you'll hear a lovely song from my good friend Che Berriot with themes that are resounding throughout this episode. Now, if you've heard other StoryPaths episodes, you'll know that this one is much more in-depth and fleshed out. It's more like a miniature documentary than the podcast I was doing previously, which were much simpler. I've been inspired by podcasts like the Fall of Civilizations podcast and the Emerald. If you don't know those, check them out. They craft their content with sounds and music and different voices coming in, in a way that really brings the subject to life. So I'm in debt to them for this inspiration. So this month, to accompany the release of this podcast, I've created a piece of art with themes from this episode about the Salish Sea ecosystem, which is on the west coast here in Canada and in Cal- going down to California. It's where I am right now, up in, up in BC, Canada. I've also made a short story about a tribe moving from being nomadic and weaving stories in the landscape to being sedentary and attempting to weave those stories into built structures. So you can check that out. These will be on Patreon. I'm starting a Patreon account this month. I'm going to put these things for free on Patreon for this 
first month to kick things off and give people a sense of what it is. And if you're interested, please sign up as a subscriber. It's very encouraging to me. Uh, not very expensive. Also, there's a couple tiers there. Uh, everybody gets everything except the second tier will have prints mailed to them each month. So it's mostly to cover the uh, mailing cost. So if you go on over there, you'll get there at the exciting beginning of the Patreon account. I'm going to offer story workshops there soon as well, which is a bit like getting together to play and make stories with direction and structure and also free-flowing themed around the episode of the month. It may all be a little bit wobbly as I get everything rolling and in place, so please bear with me and your support does mean a lot. In this episode, I have used countless sound effects and music tracks, too many to name here, but I've included all of these in the episode notes. I'm especially grateful to CC Mixter, the site, and the artists there, and freesound.org, and all the artists who are hosted there. And now, let us finish our time together with a song. past the parade grand facade that's in decay elusive ideals lacking in truth adamant claims without any proof arranged affairs stifling our airs pushing forth without any cares wasting waters ripping the land Plundering black gold deep in the sands Please. 
Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part, I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.